morning, everyone. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Richard. Uh, as you can see, we're, we're doing things a little differently this morning. Uh, kind of this part of the, the service, the, the preach is earlier than it maybe normally is, and, and hopefully the reason for that will become evident. If you have a Bible, could you please turn to Nehemiah chapter 9? Last week in chapter 8, we reflected on the importance and the place of, of God's Word in, uh, in our daily lives, and I know lots of you responded and resolved uh, concerning your reading and your engagement with Scripture in 2017, and maybe particularly during these 40 days. Well, today, that theme continues, uh, but with an added dimension. But first of all, let me, let me read the first two verses of Nehemiah 9. They're on the screen here, and then I'm going to ask you a question. First two verses of Nehemiah 9. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. Here's the question. What do you do when you get it wrong? What do you do when you know that you've messed up? You've had a bad attitude. You've said something out of order. You've entertained impure thoughts. You've behaved inappropriately. How, how do you respond? How do you deal with that? This week, as I've read and thought about this incident in Nehemiah 9, I've been challenged about my own attitude towards sin and, and how I react to it in my life. You know, whenever a kid does something wrong and they say, sorry, have you, if you are a parent, have you ever heard yourself or heard others follow that up with, yes, but how sorry are you? It's not a very clever question. But when I sin, as I have this week, and when I get it wrong, I am sorry. But I do wonder, does God ever say, yes, David, but how sorry? How sorry are you? Where is the tangible evidence of your remorse? Now, I know some people might think, David, that's an unhelpful thought. But as I look at this episode in Nehemiah 9, I'm struck by the reaction of the people regarding their sin. As I've said, when I mess up, I'm sorry, but the idea of fasting, of, of wearing sackcloth, of covering myself in ash, they're way down the list of things I would consider doing when I offend God or others. Surely that's extreme. Surely that's fanatical. It's unnecessary. Now, I'm not about to suggest, based on these two verses, that we should ever do that. 
or, or that God expects it. But I wonder, is there a danger that I've, we've become too blasé and flippant about sin? I mean, God will forgive us, won't he? That, that's his nature. Plus, I'm only human. Or here's a risk. I adopt the Britney Spears approach to repentance. Oops, I did it again. It's no big deal. Messed up again. In Nehemiah 9, the remorse is incredible. The genuine sorrow and regret over sin was tangible. The people stopped eating. They sit on the ground. They exchange their comfortable outfits for these itchy, irritating goat hair tunics. And they smear ash and dust on their heads. It's, it's hardcore. Confession was not a light, momentary, oops, I did it again thing. These people grasped the seriousness of sin and they recognized its devastating personal and corporate effect. They called it as it was and they took responsibility for it. And the question I've been asking myself this week was, was when was the last time I actively confessed my sin? We live in a culture where sin's no longer an issue. Some of you might remember me reading this uh, from Frank Freudy, writing in The Spectator back in 2002. He said this, There are no longer sinners, only addictive personalities. In a world where the concept of personal guilt has lost all resonance, the seven deadly sins have become behavioral problems that require treatment rather than punishment. He goes on, Take lust. Those who might have once been denounced as lustful are now said to be addicted to sex and in need of therapy. Anger now takes forms such as road rage, trolley rage. It calls for stress management techniques. Greed and envy have become shopaholism. Sloth has been medicalized. And as for the last of the seven deadly sins, prayed. Well, that's been rehabilitated into a virtue. Almost all of today's problems are based on poor self-esteem. And I fully appreciate that's quite strong. <laughs> Maybe even a little controversial. But the point is this. Sin is a disappearing word from our, sin, from our society's vocabulary. It's an increasing non-issue, but as Christians, we have got to guard against becoming so well-adjusted to our culture that we fit into it without even thinking. Sin matters. Still matters. It mattered to these people. So let me read verse 3. They stood where they were. And they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. That's a quarter of daylight hours, it's reckoned. And they spent another quarter of a day in confession. And worshipping the Lord their God. For three hours, they read God's word. 
echoes of last week. For three hours, they stood and read God's word. Such was their reverence, their respect, their sense of expectation. And as the people read and listened, they felt like they were standing in a hall of mirrors. The content of God's word revealed and reflected God's holiness and expressed their sin. And in response, what followed was a further three hours of confession and worship. And as I read and as I reread those verses this week, it got me thinking about lots of things, including the structure of our services. We tend to gather and we sing and we have communion and we have announcements and we pray and then we finish with God's word. But maybe Maybe a a better order for corporate gatherings would be to start here, to start with the Bible, then to move to confession, then to move to communion, then to finish with song, worship, and prayer. You see, according to Nehemiah 9, reading precedes confession, and confession precedes worship. So this morning, we're, we're changing it around. I'm not suggesting that we're gonna do this every week. I just wanted to do it this morning to get us to think a little. You see, when the people of God were exposed to his word, to the reading of scripture, it powerfully revealed their hearts and their lives before a holy God, which drove them to their knees in confessions and then took them to their feet in worship. And I wonder if it's true that without a consistent and regular exposure to God's word, you can become blasé. And you can become indifferent and apathetic regarding your sin. Do you know when God's word gets abandoned, sin goes unchecked. It maybe even goes unnoticed. The natural fallout of a neglect of Bible is a neglect of personal sin. Sin then becomes, and I'm speaking personally, sin becomes easier to stomach. And it becomes less and less disturbing. Whenever these people looked in the mirror of God's word, they were driven to their knees. Confession is a holy habit. It's a spiritual discipline. It's an essential practice of the Christian faith. We see great heroes of the faith like David doing it in Psalm 51. In the Beatitudes, Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. And a key part of what Jesus was saying there is, blessed are those who mourn over their personal sin. Confession lifts the lid. It opens the window. It reveals what's within. It's tough. It's often painful. And it requires an attitude of genuine humility. But let me read another translation of Nehemiah 9, verse 3, because this adds a whole other level to it. The laws of God were read aloud to them for two or three hours. And for several more hours, they took turns confessing their own sins and those of their ancestors, and everyone worshiped the Lord their God. You see, it was, a, it was a practice then to openly admit your sin to one another. I wonder what effect that practice would have on church attendance today. 
might be one quick answer to an accommodation problem, but can you, can you imagine the impact if, think about this, can you imagine the impact if for the next three hours, we decide to give every single person the opportunity to come up here and publicly confess their sins? Starting with me. Then Glennis. Because <laughs> that would be good. And just working our way along. Do you know the Apostle James writes, confess your sins to each other. Pray for one another. When was the last time you confessed your sin to someone else? In, in his book, Your God is Too Safe, which is one of my favorite books of all time, Mark Buchanan suggests this about confession. In order to present our real selves to God, we need to be honest with ourselves about ourselves and honest about ourselves to at least one other trusted and godly person. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in another classic, The Cost of Discipleship, writes, as long as I am by myself in the confession of my sins, everything remains in the dark. But in the presence of a brother, sin has to be brought into the light. When, when was the last time you confessed your sins to another person? The people of God in Nehemiah, and it's the people of God in Nehemiah took turns. Their confession was active, it wasn't passive. Oscar Wilde said, a man's very highest moment is, I have no doubt at all, when he kneels in the dust and beats his breast and tells all the sins of his life. But a low open confession is good, and, and I do encourage you to consider that practice. It's biblical. Ultimately, it's got to be before and to God. And as we read on in Nehemiah 9, beginning at verse 5 and running right through to verse 37, we come across one of the most detailed, one of the most moving prayers of confession and adoration in all of Scripture. And this prayer that goes from verse 5 to verse 37 of Nehemiah 9, and in many ways I would love to read all of it, but I recognize time just doesn't allow us to do that. But it's a prayer that has been described as a brilliant mosaic of biblical quotations and reflections and images and phrases. And I, I urge you and I encourage you to go home some stage today and read that. I know many of you who are doing the 40 days will have been reading or will read 1 Samuel 16 and 17 today. But add Nehemiah 9. It, it's a Sunday. We're hardcore on Sundays. Add Nehemiah 9 and read from verse 5 30 to 37 when you get home. But it's one of the most detailed moving prayers in all of Scripture. But we are going to stand now and read some of it. So let's do that. I am going to kind of go through it and skip out verses so you don't necessarily need to follow it if you have a copy of God's Word. And anyway, whenever this prayer was kind of offered and shared, people didn't have anything in front of them to look at. Stand up and praise the Lord your God. For he lives from everlasting to everlasting. 
Then they prayed, may your glorious name be praised. May may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the skies and the heavens and all the stars. You made the earth and the seas and everything in them. You preserve them all and the angels of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and renamed him Abraham. And you have done what you promised, for you are always true to your word. You saw the misery of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cries from beside the Red Sea. You displayed miraculous signs and wonders against Pharaoh, his officials, and all his people. For you knew how arrogantly they were treating our ancestors. You, God, have a glorious reputation that has never been forgotten. You gave your people bread from heaven when they were hungry and water from the rock when they were thirsty. You commanded them to go and take possession of the land you'd swore to give them. But our ancestors were proud and stubborn. And they paid no attention to your commands. And they refused to obey. And they did not remember the miracles you'd done for them. But you're a God of forgiveness. And you're gracious and you're merciful and you're slow to anger and you're rich in unfailing love. You did not abandon them, even when they made an idol shaped like a calf. But in your great mercy, you did not abandon them to die in the wilderness. But despite all this, they were disobedient. And they rebelled against you. So you handed them over to their enemies who made them suffer. But in their time of trouble, they cried to you and you heard them from heaven. In your great mercy, you sent them liberators who rescued them from their enemies. But as soon as they were at peace, your people again committed evil in your sight. Yet whenever your people turned and cried to you again for help, you listened. And in your wonderful mercy, you rescued them many times. In your great mercy, you did not destroy them completely or abandon them forever. What a gracious and merciful God you are. Every time you punished us, you were being just. Because we have sinned greatly. And you gave us only what we deserve. It's, it's an incredible summary of their and our spiritual heritage. That prayer is a profound reflection on the nature of God. And so we hear things like, you've done what you promised. You're always true to your word. You're a God who forgives. You're gracious, merciful, slow to anger, rich in unfailing love. In your wonderful mercy, you rescued them repeatedly, many times, time and time again. They kept abandoning you, turning their backs on you, letting you down, sinning, but you just never abandoned them, God. And in your love, you were patient with them for many years. You see, here are a people of God with a big vision of God. And I need that. We need that. 
And in his book, God in the Wilderness, David Wells reflects on, on how we seem to have such a shallow understanding of the person of God. And he writes, it's, it's as though we have marginalized God. We have domesticated him to serve our purposes. His greatness awes us less than it should. His power we give lip service to, but we fail to appropriate it for daily living. His grace we take for granted. And we are something less than amazed by it. And in Nehemiah 9, the, the, the people's vision of God was increased to such an extent that they become acutely aware of their own sinfulness and it drives them to their knees in confession. And maybe, maybe that's the reason for my blasé approach to sin. Sometimes, maybe most of the time, I've lost the sense of the bigness and greatness and holiness of God. I've domesticated God. I've become too familiar with God. I've boxed God. I've tamed God. I've sidelined God. And a core part of regaining and maintaining a right perspective, a proper vision, is a commitment to reading, reflecting, and meditating on God's word. Why? Because this prayer's use of scripture is a reminder of that. And to put it simply, we are not going to be able to understand God's character nor realize the depth of our sin so that we can respond as these people did unless and until the word of God works in our minds and the spirit of God challenges our hearts. And this is one of the reasons why during these 40 days we're placing an emphasis on Bible reading. That's why I laid out the challenge last week to follow the 40-day Bible reading plan that is in our 40 days. How are you getting on? How are you getting on? Not just reading for reading's sake. How are you getting on getting to know God better? Reading precedes confession. Confession precedes worship. I need to finish. Let me finish with what I hope is an encouraging truth. See, when we come to God in, in genuine confession, we encounter the amazing grace of God. Over and over again, this prayer in Nehemiah records words that can be kind of summarized or boiled down to something like this. We have messed up God. We have messed up God. We keep messing up time and time again. We keep getting it wrong. Time and time again, I keep getting it wrong. But yet you, in your grace, you forgive and you restore us. You see, God's grace keeps giving. It never meets a lost cause, a hopeless case one who's used up their sin quota and finds themselves outside looking in. God is, as Luther said, a glowing furnace of love. And these people in Nehemiah 9 felt the heat. Despite the incomplete shambles that they and their ancestors had made in trying to live for him at times, God's love kept burning for them. 
And I know that all too often this is how I feel. I mess up. I've messed up this week. Blatantly disobeyed, sugar-coated selfishness, rationalized rebellion, excused my failures. I go for ages neglecting to read God's word. Prayer's the last thing in my mind in terms of a list of things to do. And I seem so unable at times to withstand temptation. And yet when I turn to God, when I come to this table, I keep experiencing warmth from a glowing furnace of love. God is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, rich in unfailing love. So, what should you do? What should I do when we've done something wrong? What should you do this morning? Let me give you four things. The first we've been doing, read scripture. Secondly, and we all have an opportunity to do this as Stephen leads us, actively confess your sin to God. But consider confessing it to one other person. Expand your vision of God through regular exposure to his word. And embrace grace. Feel the heat. And never be less than amazed by it. Theme.